Hello, and welcome to Third Time's a Charm, the show that takes an in-depth look at the third movie in a franchise. I'm your host, Mike, and this is Episode 8, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Part 2. In this episode, Dr. Green's Late Night and myself, Mad Mike, take a look at the second half of the movie, and we visit the crack in the earth, then all aboard, as we take a look at the thrilling climactic train sequence to close out the film chat. Then crack open the novelization to go beyond the movie with third times a book. This was definitely, by far, the best novelization I've read yet, and I'm very excited to share some passages with the good doctor and Mr. Knight himself. So, fill up your canteen, secure your spider monkey, and start walking, because we're headed for Tomorrow Morrowland and a thrilling conclusion to Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Shot by Iron Bar, which is the name, that's the name of the dude with all the tattoos with that weird mask sticking out the back of, of his head. Um, his name is Iron Bar Bassey. In the book, he's called that a lot, but I think she calls him Iron Bar once or twice in this movie. But he ends up killing Blaster, and they take Max to spin the wheel, and they, and they do like kind of like, a, it's like a whole like Wheel of Fortune thing where Dr. Dealgood comes back out and explains the wheel, the deal of the wheel. The wheel of misfortune, if you will. There you go. Basically, they spin the wheel, and it's got, like, all these different choices on it. It's, like, lose a body part, all kinds of crazy shit. And the one that it lands on for Max is the gulag, which basically is they tie him up, put him on a horse, and they trot him out into the desert in one direction with a giant oversized sort of, like, kind of looks like a Bob's Big Boy head, like, on him or something. Yeah, what was that about? I think it's just humiliation. Like, on top of everything else, they're going to, like, just laugh at him while he goes off into his death. Yeah, I guess so. First of all, gulag, I didn't realize that that, that's what that meant, because, you know, I just always think like the Russian gulag prisons, but... Well, here's where I'm thinking of your pre-apocalypse references. Like, you know, they probably remember the gulag was like a horrible place people went and ended up dying, and it was like a very isolated, desolate place, and... Well, it's not icy cold, it is burning hot, and it is desolate. So, like, it's kind of funny how they use that word. Yeah, it's interesting. So, I wrote down all the choices on the wheel. So, it's death, hard labor, acquittal, gulag, auntie's choice, spin again, forfeit goods, underworld, amputation, life imprisonment. I wonder if auntie's choice is she can choose anything, or she has to choose one of the other options. (laughs) <laughs> That's actually a pretty good question. Does she get to make something up, or is it whatever's on the wheel? I guess the book doesn't let us know, I guess. I was hoping for that in book club, but guess not. There's definitely more about the gulag, though, and explaining what's going on there and everything in the book and stuff. What they expand on in the book is actually really good. I've really very much enjoyed reading it this time. But yeah, so Max gets trotted out into the desert. His horse gets swallowed up by quicksand. And then he is near death when he is found by Savannah Nix, one of the children who live in what they call the crack in the earth. 
So, like, these kids find Max, he's near death, they bring him back to their place in the tribe of children, and we start the second movie inside <laughs> inside the movie. We're on to movie two here. Max the Savior. Getting a lot more of those religious sort of overtones are going to be coming through. After his long trek through the desert, he has made it to this sort of oasis, and he will lead the children into freedom. So the society here of children, this Eden, the kids from the plane, and not like the great plane, but the airplane. Yeah, I mean, it's cool. <laughs> How do you take this like drastic shift here? You know, we just left like one of the craziest places on Earth, and, and here we are in like a serene dream almost. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it really is like a shift in tone. It's a shift even in the lighting and the color. And it's also going from like a very dry place to like a very like lush and wet place. This was like another place where I was like kind of uncomfortable because Australia does have a population of indigenous people that have their own customs and stuff like that that are like never really acknowledged in these movies. But this society draws very heavily heavily on those. So I just found that like a little icky feeling, but other than that, I liked it. It's it's very um, Island of Lost Boys from Peter Pan. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't pick up on the Peter Pan stuff, but I was definitely thinking about what you said. It's one of the times where representation isn't played by the sort of like the proper actors. I mean, I guess it would be hard to get a bunch of children. The idea that these are kids, I think they get away with the concept a lot better than if it was like a bunch of just tan adults yeah. living like this. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, because I was like, there's a bunch of really tan white kids running around with like mud in their hair. But yeah. I, I don't want to justify it, but it's also like these are definitely rich kids, you know, because the freaking apocalypse was coming and they put them all on a plane. Probably <laughs> not that I'm serious. I don't know if it was so much rich as they were lucky because this, I think in the tell it's after the bombs drop and then Captain Walker is who they think Max is and they're like you know the lucky few got on the plane and then it crashed and they are the children of the survivors and out of it were birthed crackling dust and fearsome time it were full on winter and Mr. Dead chasing them all but one he couldn't catch that were Captain Walker he gathers up a gang takes to the air and flies the sky so they left their homes said bye bye to the high scrapers and what were left of the Noah they left behind some say the wind just stopped it others reckon it were a gang called turbulence They were, in my mind, they were just the upper crust of Sydney society helping those kids out. Which is, I mean, all things considered, the rich people are way more likely to survive some sort of apocalypse because you can buy your way out of it. I mean, there are billionaires who are trying to get dual citizenship in New Zealand so that when shit goes down, they can just move there. That's happening in real life. Wow. Brian, you definitely took it to a level I was not digging to this screening. It does make sense, though, because they remember the skyscrapers, and at the end, they're going to end up in Sydney. So we see the Opera House, or at least in the book, it's clarified like they fly past the remains of the Opera House and through the valley of buildings and everything, and they see the bridge destroyed and stuff. So Yeah, you see the Opera House in the movie, too, because I remember that scene very vividly and I really liked how they shot it. 
or I guess I don't know was that an illustration or computer generated I'm not sure I think it was a model okay yeah that makes sense it was a model yeah we were saying a little earlier about CGI and stuff like there was no there's the CGI just did not right. exist there's a, I think there might be one matte painting somewhere in this movie somewhere I'm not sure of that but everything else is really there which is great just that adds so much to it in these old movies just knowing that all this stuff is actually there yeah. Yeah, I knew it was a model because, like, I, I read something where they were really upset, but they had to destroy it because there was no place to put it. So they built this beautiful model and they just, I think, torched it. Like, <laughs> that stinks. That sucks. Yeah. One reason or explanation for maybe why, like, all of this stuff feels completely different, or not completely, but like, there's such a tonal change, or there's just like such a different feel to it, is that George Miller didn't direct any of this stuff with the kids. The way it went down was that George Ogilvy directed all of this stuff when he gets to the crack in the earth. So George Miller focused on like Barter Town, the Thunderdome, and the car chase at the end, and mostly just like the action and stuff. And then Ogilvy did all of like this dramatic stuff with the kids and workshopped with all these actors. And basically, the reason why Ogilvy was even co directing this movie is because George Miller's best friend, who was a producer, died. His name was Brian Kennedy, and the movie is dedicated to him, and he died in a crash. Location scouting this movie. Yeah, it's so sad. Yeah, that is sad. I give this movie a little bit extra because of that, and if it doesn't really get its thoughts across. 100% properly all the time and if it does sort of feel a little bit like a two-in-one movie thing here but ultimately I like the feel of it and I like that we sort of take a breath and explore this completely different side of the Mad Max universe. I mean we haven't gotten like any of this in the previous two movies really this is way more sort of peaceful and it's just nice knowing that in this mad mad world there's a little bit of this type of you know sanity As Max drifts through the post-apocalyptic Australia, the last three films, he meets different people surviving in different ways, and this is just like another take on survival. Again, I'd seen Fury Road, so this is like the least Fury Road element, you know what I'm saying? But it was a nice like change of pace in the series in terms of just, again, seeing how other people, and I believe them as children of privilege who happen to land in this, what do they call it, like an oasis, like how they survived and kind of built their society. I mean, they've probably been there. Wait, how long have they been there, you'd say? The apocalypse was roughly, in the book it says, it's roughly 20 years ago since everything went to hell. So this would be second generation of plane crash survivors, I guess. Because they also talk about how all the adults went out on a rescue mission, right? And Captain Walker turned back and was like, wait for us, one of us will come back. So like, basically, they were abandoned by the parents and the adults and stuff. And I imagine they found Barter Town and like a bunch of them entered the Thunderdome and never came out or something. Or they just all died in the desert. That too. Could have just gotten swallowed up by the sand. Or dehydration. People always underestimate how how much dehydration can kill you. Very true. Very true. Which I think is why Max is reluctant to leave the comfort. It's basically the lap of luxury. Yeah. I mean, especially after all of the shit that he's seen, you know, like traveling this wasteland to finally find some place that not only has like clean running water, but like shade and plants and stuff. That seems like a pretty nice place to retire. Also, nobody who can realistically kill him unless it's in his sleep or if they all gang up on him. <laughs> like he's, you know, he's Mad Max. He's like badass. He's Captain Walker, according to these children. Yes. 
which is very much C-3PO to the... The Ewoks? To the Ewoks, yeah. There have been comparisons. I think these movies were released within like a year of each other. Oh, really? Again, I think it's just more of we want to try and capture a larger audience, and we got to get that kid's money, too. It's not enough that we have his older brother's money. Like, <laughs> got to get the whole family. It's also just like that, I don't want to call it a trope, but like the Joseph Conrad Heart of Darkness, like whole quote-unquote savages worshipping the new guy kind of thing. Right, yeah, it's got that a little bit of that Colonel Kurtz thing happening, right? <laughs> that even, again, is like a huge trope of Western films also, and even shows up in an American tale, Fievel Goes West. No kidding. Oh. Yeah, the orange cat that Fievel is friends with gets kind of captured and then worshipped as a god. <laughs> Haven't seen that one in a long time. Oh, it's excellent. Highly recommend. Which American tale is better? I th think the second one is a lot more successful from a technical standpoint and also from a standpoint of the story because the first one, too many cooks in the kitchen, the middle gets all, it's not great, but the very beginning of the first one is very strong and the ending is pretty okay, whereas I think the second movie is more consistent. Good to know. I've never seen the second one as much as I love the first one and love Westerns. Oh my goodness. It's really a meta-Western, so highly, highly. Did they ever make a third one? Oh, uh, they made a bunch more movies, yeah. That's the direct-to-DVD yeah. season. Uh, it's way down the... That's not only that season, it's the direct-to-DVD cartoon movie season. Yeah. So that's even further down the yeah, line. Yeah, that one can probably hang out at the bottom of your list. Land before time. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> oh, man. No, I was going to say, you know, the Savior Max with his arms spread out and then, like, all the little kids standing on his shoulders and everything like that. Like, if that isn't just some Christ imagery. And then, like, the music swells and it's like... Like he's holy or something. Like, I think that's good, though. It's not subtle, and we're dealing with children, so why not make this part of the movie obvious? And I like that. I think that's cool, the way that this series can adapt in this way. Like, we could get kid-friendly in this part, and then, like, wild and crazy in other parts. But yeah, so the kids, after Max sees they have an airplane, and, and he's like, I'm not Captain Walker, he basically rejects the call. If we're going to do like a hero's journey little moment here for Max, because we're doing every other mythological trope in the series, because they fit, so why not? A whole bunch of the kids go out into the desert, and then he has to go like after them. What did you guys think about Max like trying to take control of all the kids, because he can't parent at all? <laughs> I thought it was a little weird that he tried to stop the kids from going off. Really? I mean, he's been out there. Like, he knows that there's nothing for them, you know? I'm just surprised he cared. Like, I figured he'd be, like, super jaded at this point. Well, I think in the second movie, there is that so-called feral child who lives, like, out in the desert by himself, who is, like, approximately the age that his own son would have been if he hadn't died in the first movie. And I think you see his heart kind of warm up to the child in the second movie and like yes this takes place 15 years later but I think that he still has pieces of humanity inside of him and this is like reawakening those and reminding him that he is still human and I don't think he likes that yeah. I think he's been out there too long that to feel human again is upsetting him I mean he even goes as far as to punch Savannah in the face to stop her from leaving startling yeah that's interesting that like you know he did lose a 
kid. He lost a, like a two-year-old or something, like a very young child. So like, Yeah, super young. Yeah, it's got to be triggering so much in him to see all these children and all the loss coming back into him and stuff. So like, I could understand him to a degree wanting to protect them, but he also just doesn't know how to communicate. A, because he just doesn't know how to communicate because he's going crazy from being out there, but also because they speak in such like their own dialect. Like They're not the easiest tribe to understand you know like these kids don't talk normally you got to guess at every other thing they're trying to tell you so there's a real communication barrier going on here too with the waiting ones waiting for what waiting for you who do you think i am i think you'd be testing us it's a testing walker you reckon we've been slack well, I don't know. Maybe you've been slack. We ain't. We kept it straight. It's all there. Everything marked, everything remembered. You wait. You'll see. Not to mention, just for the American ear, the accents. Not that it's difficult to understand an Australian accent, but the fact that they're using these words kind of... I, I guess I was slow with it, you know. I didn't mind because I thought it was cool because I'm fascinated with the way language develops in isolated pockets, so I, I kind of enjoyed that aspect of it. I'm not complaining about it, but it was definitely interesting. It felt like a real language, you know? Like it had its own syntax and like was consistent and it wasn't like they just threw in a few weird words like tomorrow, Marrowland. It like had a logical consistency to the way that they spoke which I appreciated. I liked it as well. I mean, I like, that's the thing, like I like a lot of what's going on like I can understand it's got some shortcomings and things, but I am really just going with it, like just the way that it is expanding and opening up and it just kind of keeps doing that even when Max meets back up with them like some of them in the desert, like the idea that they decide keep going to Barter Town instead of turn back to the rest of the kids, that they keep going for it like yeah granted we're going back to barter town but like we're leaving this last location and then we're going to go even further beyond thunderdome in the other direction like i like it because we're like now we're merging our two stories you know yeah it stops feeling like two different movies becomes one exactly like i like this whole thing with them with the kids sneaking in to the underworld and rescuing master i mean even though i'm still not a hundred percent on master's side because of just like the way he was manipulating blaster and the way that he was like trying to run barter town and he's not a cool dude yet but he is being you know pig tortured and demoralized and basically he's a prisoner now so i do feel for him a little bit i don't think like he should be treated like this like i i felt like anti-entity would have at least given him like a clean room you know so that they could pick his brain as opposed to like force him to fix things on demand i think it's kind of cool that this third act becomes like a kind of like rescue mission what do you guys think about when these kids come crawling back through underworld i kind of wasn't paying attention when that happened so iron bar is supposed to be sort of running underworld now instead of master blaster and he's like having arm wrestling matches no work is really getting done. It just seems like removing Master Blaster was like not a productive thing. Like it's not going the way they had expected. 
No leadership skills. That's the problem. No, but you know, realistically, the power's still on in the town, so they can't be doing that bad. That's a good call. Something's working. It might not be working as good as before, but it's operational. I was just kind of like, you know, sitting back and watching this part. I wasn't really taking notes because I guess kind of just like a fun ride at this point. You know what I mean? And it's funny you say that, like, just watching it, too, because... There's not a lot of dialogue in these movies. Like, this movie probably has the most dialogue in it out of all of the Mad Max movies. Yeah. But especially from here to the end of the movie, it's almost like 100% like silent film stuff going on. And, and it's pretty awesome. Like, this material can survive on looks alone. No, no, you're absolutely right. It's weird. Like, I just appreciated so much what a breath of fresh air this was to just sit back, relax, and watch the film. I'm doing like all these podcasts. I feel like sometimes the more notes I take, the worse the film ends up being. And when I take like no notes and when I can just watch the film, that ends up being like an awesome, awesome movie. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, I actually only took three notes while watching this, and I usually write down a lot more stuff. But one was the thing about Dr. Dealgood. The second was the thing about finding my Halloween costume. And then the third thing was a question about where they're getting the hair product to facilitate all of like the big hair and mohawks. How are they doing that without hair products? Especially since oil in this society is such a hot commodity. But, you know, maybe it's like a sign of wealth. Like, if you can have enough gel or oil for your hair, you're, you're rich, you know? <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Okay, Kara. Yeah? For Halloween, are you prepared to wear 121 pounds of chainmail? <laughs> no, I was thinking I'll probably make it out of, like, some wire and then some, like, silver organza or tool or something instead of the chain mail, because that'll be a lot lighter. And, like, duct tape? Like, that's probably all I need. Maybe some tinfoil. Yeah, because I read her actual chain mail was 121 pounds. Yeah, 121 pounds. Yikes. Wow. Which just makes me respect Tina Turner that much more, because if I was wearing something that weighed 121 pounds, like, you would be able to see it in my face. I would not be able to like make a normal face. I would be like, I'm wearing something really heavy and it hurts. Yeah, and she's like running around and stuff in it. Yeah, she's like all in. She's like living it, you know? Oh, it's you could hear it in her voice. Like she is so down to be in this movie and just chewing up the scenery and loving it. And, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like she is happy to be here and having a lot of yeah. fun. Oh, for sure. It's great, too, how it's kind of, like, coming through the screen because it's infectious. Like, she's just, like, when she cracks a smile and laughs and calls him Raggedy Man, you're just like, yes, yes, you're selling it so well. Ain't we a pair? Raggedy Man. <laughs> Goodbye, soldier. Yeah, but I think all of the costumes in this movie are really fantastic. The woman who is the costume designer also did Mad Max 2, so she was the one who decided to just put everyone in, like, fetish gear for the second movie. And because this one had such a bigger budget, they were able to, like, really go for it, and I just love the costumes in this. A lot of great hat work, like, everything was just really well done. She also was the costume designer for The Island of Dr. Moreau, the one with Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando, which is a bonkers movie if you have not seen it. Highly recommend. And she also was a costume designer on the aforementioned Babe Pig in the City. 
I really wonder if being around all these pigs inspired Miller one day. Like, if he just had pigs on the brain for the rest of his life, and he was like, one day I'm just going to do something again with these damn pigs, and, like, come hell or high water, and I'm going to win awards, and it's going to be amazing. (laughs) So I read that they actually had to borrow all these pigs because the producers and George Miller were afraid that if they purchased all the pigs, that it would somehow disrupt the local pig-like market. <laughs> yeah, so like he basically rented them from a farmer and I was a little curious where you get this many pigs. Yeah, I had to give them back at the end of the film, so one thing I didn't notice for a while, it took me a couple viewings to notice it earlier in the movie, but did you guys even realize that there was a train in Underworld that they had like converted a train into the methane fuel generator? Yeah, no. I did not. But apparently the character of Master had been an engineer previous to the nuclear situation. So that was how he built that whole underworld thing. Oh, interesting. That is not in the book. Oh. Yeah, so that's a cool tidbit. I like that. Because anti-entity starts to get in. She's like, before I was nothing, but after... I was something. And I just thought, like, that was great. I just, I want a whole spinoff with her. Like, give Tina her own movie. <laughs> just wait until you see Fury Road, Kara, because all anyone said after that is, forget Max, give us Furiosa. Yeah. <laughs> we just want more of her. What do you think uh, Tina Turner's influence was on, I guess, Charlize Theron's character in the new films? There's even in part two, there's like Warrior Woman. She doesn't have like a proper name or anything. I was so mad when she got killed because I was really hoping that she would be in the third one. I feel like these are all sort of proto versions of what Miller is ultimately going to do with Furiosa, especially at the end of that movie. I don't want to spoil it or give away too much about that character for Kara. I feel like it's a constant evolution is basically what it comes down to. I feel like he's he was always working towards Furiosa and this was just sort of a stepping stone to get there. Yeah, it's like you said, it's like an evolution. It's like everything gets more badass, more baller, especially when it comes to these female characters. But overall, I think, like, throughout the films, it just, like, keeps upping the ante, like every great franchise. Yeah, everything just gets cranked up even higher and more intense, and everything is more insane. Furiosa is almost like a female version of Max, but, like, you know, you could go check out the Fury Road podcast over on Watch the Throne, and I'm sure we're, we're talking all about her. Obviously, uh, you guys can continue the discussion on Watch the Throne. Yeah, if I can loop back around to the way that she was characterized on the DVD box as, how did they put it? A power-mad dominatrix? Yeah, I have a difficult time with that characterization. I have, like, have been getting angrier about it <laughs> this whole time. Because, like, for one thing, she's not a dominatrix. That's not what she is. Like, and, like, it's almost like that was written by somebody who didn't see the movie. Just saw the cover art. <laughs> yeah, they just, like, saw the drawing of her and was like, oh, well, obviously she's, you know. And being power hungry. Like, I don't feel like that character is power hungry. She's just trying to, like, keep the order. And in this, like, relatively lawless society, like, you need to exert a lot of power over people in order to maintain order. Like, before there's a social contract, there needs to be this kind of, like, Machiavellian person who has power. And that doesn't necessarily mean that she's power hungry, but I do feel like because she is a woman and she is trying to exert 
that power and exact that power, she winds up being characterized as a villain, as somebody who's power hungry, as in this case, a dominatrix. It's so weird because, like, if you're just looking at her outfit and making that judgment call, look at the outfits in Mad Max 2. I mean, come on. Like, it's not even a comparison to me. Right. Yeah, it's very S&M. It's heavily inspired by it. I mean, that's literally where they got the costumes for the second movie. It was like they went to shops that sold BDSM gear and bought it and put people in it. Yeah. Yeah, that's why it sounds like someone wrote it that never saw this right. movie. Like, they probably saw Road Warrior and was like, oh, I bet this is filled with, like, leather daddies and dominatrix and you know snm gear and all and there really isn't i was actually a little disappointed that we kind of steer a little away from the oiled up you know muscle bound freaks and stuff because that is just so bizarre different society yeah i suppose but also i think the amount of time that has elapsed since there was a society and factories making these leather goods you know what i mean like over time those things might last longer than necessarily regular textiles but at the same time it's not gonna last that long especially not in this like exacting punishing environment oh yeah max definitely talks in the book about getting a fresh set of leather like new leather pants new leather jacket like he's feeling good like this is gonna be good protect him it'll last so that's in the book it's in there (laughs) they go charging full speed toward the climax of this movie here where they all get on the old train and bust out a barter town and leave it a big old smoldering fireball in their wake and this is like the road warrior you know redux sequence this is the end of the road warrior but instead of just a tanker truck we have like a huge train and we're gonna be doing a lot more jumping from car to car and vehicle and all that kind of stuff and we got like this awesome crazy chase that mad max series is known for it's awesome yeah i really love this scene i thought it was a lot of fun it's just like amazing you know i love the idea that they're in that little house thing like masters got like a little house back there and they're climbing all over the train it's really cool yeah, it's very um, Western, you know, it's very like the whole train ride or a great train race. Exactly. It just harkens back to some like classic movies of old with an obvious like modern apocalyptic twinge, you know. Oh, there's even one guy whose car is cowskinned covered and he's wearing an entire cowskin suit. Oh, yeah. Like Max jumps on his car and like tosses him off of it and everything. And then um, like that one kid, his name is Screw Loose, but he's like, I co- used to call him the witch doctor, but he jumps on Max's car and, and like doesn't know how to drive or anything. So like it's just constantly going out of control. He's hitting people with a frying pan. It's, it's Looney Tunes. Like, you know, they're like, Tweety Bird noises when he hits someone with a frying pan. It's great. It's great, and it's like, it's scary because these are real people doing really dangerous stuff. But never do I feel like it's too, too slapstick. It just works, you know? And entirely practical. Out there, in the desert, on a train track, jumping from car to car, risking their lives, breaking their legs. Oh, yeah, for sure. All for us. And there's like there's like a risk here, but it's it's just interesting that like you'll never see this. Well, I guess except for Fury Road, you'll never see stuff like this in a movie today. It's all CGI or even like sets and stuff. This is like legit, and it just keeps you there, you know. It's a tough business. I mean, these guys were real kind of crazy guys, like risking their lives doing this these kinds of stunts and things. I just 
respect them and appreciate them so much as not just filmmakers, but people like wanting to put their lives on the line just for entertainment, you know, just so not just, but so that they could say like, look at this cool shit we did, which is, and like, we could say thank you for it. It's really crazy when you watch a movie like a Mad Max movie. That's what these movies do for me is really remind me of like the craft and the devotion and the dedication and and, like really like the blood, the sweat and the guts that it takes to pull off like a truly awesome, entertaining movie like this. Yeah. And there's something about these scenes that like are really fun and like exciting because they are so dangerous. But in Waterworld, there's this one scene where there's like one group is like storming a barricade. And I was just laughing and yelling, this looks so dangerous. <laughs> like, <laughs> But I couldn't let go of how dangerous it looked. Whereas like something like this, I was... I still in the movie and in the story and not thinking like, oh my God, this looks so fucking dangerous. Yeah, there'll be like moments where I'm like just into it and it's exciting and suddenly someone will jump and I'll be like, holy crap, like, okay. I mean, but then I'm back into yeah. it again. Like, I'm not really dwelling. Like, it's there's awesomeness happening, <laughs> but it's all awesome. So there's just, like, peaks, like, throughout. It's almost like a like a roller coaster ride, this yeah. sequence, you know? Like, there are truly parts where, like, an amazing crash, and then it kind of settles down, and it ramps up again. And then, you know, Max grabs Master and, like, jumps from cart to cart. And, you know, yeah. And then it kind of slows down for a second, and then it ramps up again, and they crash into, like, a doom buggy head-on and everything. So it's really cool. Maybe that's what it is that like it does give you like a chance to almost like catch your breath before ramping back up again. Whereas like the water world scene is just like crazy shit just happening constantly. And it's like kind of exhausting. <laughs> you get to the end of it. You're like, Ugh. whereas this one, I didn't feel quite as exhausted. Yeah. Cause there's like a, there's like a psychology to it, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to bring up wrestling again. I apologize. No, by all means. Cause this reminds me of wrestling so much. Okay, so people can do all sorts of things in wrestling. Like, they're very talented people. They're very talented athletes. But you can't just go in the ring and jump around and, like, hit each other. There's, like, an art to it, you know? There's, like, a there's like a science behind it. There's a psychology behind it. Like, if you do all the best moves all at once, no one's going to follow along. But you have to build there. You have to kind of, like, do this and do that. And there has to be lulls and you have to push forward. And this action scene is almost, like, the same. Like, if a wrestler goes in and jumps off the top rope, a million times. Sure, that's like an athletic feat, but it's not exactly talent, you know? There's a difference here. There's like a psychology to it. And it's weird to say, but like a good action sequence is like the same as this. You don't want people just jumping off the top rope and crashing into each other. You want a, you want beauty. You want an art form to this. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's storytelling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, storytelling. This sequence is definitely telling a story, too. Yeah, I mean, it's thrilling. It's dangerous. It's funny. I mean, when Iron Bar is hanging off an Iron Bar on the train and, like, like has to kick his legs up so he doesn't hit, like, the poles and stuff like that, like, again, it's great. There's just all this levity, you know, at different degrees to, to break up the crazy action stuff. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then we get to the end of the line, and we're sort of going to, like, end where this movie begins. We got the little kid basically sticks him up at the end of the railroad tracks. <laughs> this is a stick-up! Anybody moves and the dead mate! Oh, I think we're all dead mate! 
I just thought that was like one of the most adorable moments ever. Yeah, no, I love the way he looks. Like I love his outfit and the whole trap and, and how he just stands up to them. But then he sees like they're being chased and I love this too when I was younger. The idea that he like opens up the back of a car that's like a, in a junkyard and he has like a tunnel dug like through the trunk and everything. Like it's sort of like a little like camouflage to get into his house. Thankfully, it turns out to be Jeremiah's house and he's got a plane. So that's exactly what they need. There's a lot of writing on his wall, like Maggie, Maggie. I don't remember Maggie from the last movie or anything, but it, it, I would like to imagine that he ended up with the blonde from the last movie and this is their child or something. That's not the same guy. No, it's not, but I'd like to imagine it. <laughs> Didn't he get like elected like leader? Didn't that imply that at least he joins the team? The kid? The uh, aviator guy, the helicopter guy. He definitely joins them. He's definitely going to be with them. Yes. Different character, same actor. Gotcha. Gotcha. There was actually an episode of Nickelodeon's Rugrats called The Sky is Falling with an end of the world scene that parodies the second Mad Max movie. And Chucky is actually like dressed as the gyrocaptor guy. Oh, nice. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. In the SpongeBob movie, Bikini Bottom gets like Mad Max post-apocalyptic. It turns into like a desert landscape and everyone's wearing the gear. And if you saw the Lego Movie 2 trailer, it also looks like some shit has gone down and they are now living in like a Lego Mad Max type society. So the influence is just ever reaching with this series. Yeah, it's really amazing how much it's like leached into the culture and like shows up in so many different things. So they get to the airplane, but there's too much weight and not enough runway. So Max sacrifices himself so that the kids can get away and back to Tomorrow Morrowland. But are these kids ending up with the better deal? Like, is it better to live there in the old blown out skyscrapers than where they were before? Because I kind of think like maybe I would have liked it better back with the lake and the and the fruit and everything. Yeah, I think it's silly that they're living in the city now. I mean, at the same time, though, maybe the city offers more protection from the elements because there's actual buildings. But resource wise, it seems like they had it better back the oasis yeah i wonder if the soil is okay to farm and stuff in the city or you know some kind of urban farming can go on time has passed so perhaps it is i'm not sure i think it takes a little longer for nuclear fallout to to clear out well maybe there's just like enough canned food there that they could pretty much survive the rest of their lives i don't know or maybe they've grown immune yeah i mean that's possible i guess that's a good explanation. I'd buy that. So now there are two tribes from the same tribe, right? Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, and barter town between them. I like, see, with my whole thing with enjoying, like, languages, I like how now there's two parts of Australia that are far away from each other that will share certain language similarities that a thousand years from then, they'll be like, how did this language and this language that are isolated by so many miles have so many similarities? I mean, the same could even be said about Australian English, you know, that like English speaking people from England went there and it's kind of evolved into its own vernacular and version of English in Australia. Which is cool. Yeah. We're talking about like the most boring aspects of this like (laughs) intense action film. (laughs) 
how language is developed in the post-apocalypse. Yeah, and then they leave the light on for everyone else to find their way home if they want to, which to me sounds like they're just inviting trouble. Yeah, yeah. You're going to get a bunch of mutant freaks showing up at your front door in the next movie, so be careful what you wish for. I mean, and the, the whole reason that there's this lawlessness is because people are fighting over resources. So, like, if you're advertising that you have resources by keeping this light burning. Yeah, that's pretty silly. Yeah, it's more of a symbolic ending than one that makes perfect sense. Like, <laughs> it, it services the story well, but ultimately, like, they're more exposed and maybe a more dangerous situation than when they started off, so. Why do we care? Max is gone. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, no, well, like, the idea here, I guess, is that, right, like, their story goes on without him and like you know we follow max so like yeah we really don't have to worry about them anymore like they'll be fine as far as we're concerned max did what he had to do next adventure exactly thank you very much for talking this long about mad max i can't imagine there's anything we left out that you want to talk about but i'm going to give you the opportunity now is there anything we missed that you want to mention before i get into book club oh the poster is really wonderful yes Illustrated by Richard Amsel, who also did Chinatown and the first Star Trek movie, Apocalypse Now, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, like, very, very iconic posters. He graduated from the art school that I went to, but didn't actually graduate from. So that's cool. Nice. Beautiful poster. Like, that's that's a poster I would consider getting yeah. if I still had room on my walls. All right. So on to book club. This book, it was pretty great, believe it or not. Like, I'm a little uh, beside myself, maybe because most of these novelizations are bad, but I burned through this one. Like, I thought this one was awesome. I really liked how it expanded on the movie, and really looking forward to sharing a few quick passages with everybody here. I hope you are ready. This book was 219 pages, hmm. and it was written by Joan D. Vinge. She did a really great job writing this book. Question. How many of the novelizations that you've read have been by women? This is the only one so far. Curious that it's the best one. <laughs> She's written 95 books. Wow. Wow. It was very good. It's a very good read. Someone even read it on YouTube, so you could go on YouTube and listen to someone read it. Oh, cool. I haven't. I've just read it myself. Permit me to read a few passages to you right now. Chapter 1, page 1. I'm starting right here at the top. Ambush in the Desert of Despair. They called it the Desert of Despair. It had had another name, or two, or three, back when there were still maps and anyone who cared what was written on them. This was the name that stuck, because it still had some meaning. Nothing moved on its mirage-haunted surface for endless miles, except the red, restless sand, creeping grain on grain toward some nameless destination. It had lain unchanged for centuries, millennia, unlike the world around it, which had changed and changed again until nuclear war had put an end to everything but desolation. Pretty good opening, if you ask me. Sets the scene. So this is the first appearance of Max, which I really liked, um, and have to, you know, read because it's Max. It's what we're here for. Page 7. His brown hair, which he had once kept cut short with almost military precision, was shoulder-length now, streaked with gray at the temples. He was nearing middle-aged, and the life he had led aged a man fast. Two days' growth of stubble stood out on his lean jaw. A white scar slashed starkly across his sun-browned forehead and cheek, angling down over his left eye. The eye itself was a startling blue as the desert sky. He had nearly lost it in the fight. He was still alive. The man who had marked him was not. They called him Mad Max, if they called him anything. 
Once he had had a name, just like the blister mountain shimmering in the heat haze behind him, just like everyone else, Max Rokotansky. But that had been half a lifetime ago, before the apocalypse, when names and life itself had still seemed to have some meaning, before his country had been blown to hell along with the rest of the world, before all of humanity had become a victim of its own venality, stupidity, and greed. Max had survived nearly half a lifetime since then, largely because in the depths of his soul, he didn't give a damn whether he lived or died. <laughs> Mad Max. I would have thrown, if I was the author, I would have thrown some of his other nicknames in there, like the Road Warrior and whatever else later on he's called the walker and stuff but yeah in his introduction no uh when i was watching the first one something happened and i was like oh is this how max got so mad is this why he's mad turns out he's mad about a lot of things now is it mad and angry or is it mad in like the commonwealth sense of like crazy a little both yeah i think it's both yeah i think he straddles that fence permanently (laughs) (laughs) that's fair Anytime he's not, like, mad angry is probably a, you know, psychotic mad moment for him, right? (laughs) If you catch him smiling, it's because he's gone mad, not because he is mad. All right, so I have to read the entrance of Auntie Entity. Yes, yes. On page 28. Max looked up again, startled, as a pair of slender, long-fingered hands parted another curtain of gauze on the far side of the room. A woman stepped through. Not any woman. Auntie Entity. She was not young, but he guessed that she was at least his own age. But her body was firm and taut beneath a calf-length dress of silver metal mesh that left almost nothing to his imagination. Her hair was silver blonde, worn in a hawk's crest cascade, her skin the color of coffee with cream. She wore masses of bracelets and heavy earrings and, incredibly, high-heeled shoes. Incredibly. (laughs) Good to know. Do you think her heels were incredibly high, or it's a post-apocalyptic situation, it's incredible that somebody's wearing high heels right now? That's how I read it, that she was incredibly wearing high heels. (laughs) Like, that it was incredible for her to be wearing them. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's all sandy. Like, you can't walk around in those. Yeah, that it is incredible. Because I don't, I don't think they were incredibly high, at least not in the movie, I think. I don't know if we ever see her feet. No. I mean, those have to be pretty strong high heels to support 121 oh, yeah. pounds of metal. Yeah, you need to be wearing, like, at least a wedge. You need, like, some real support there. <laughs> This passage is interesting because it gives a bit more history between Entity and Master, like their relationship building Barter Town together. This is on page 61. Master Blaster was out of control. It was hard to remember now that there had been a time when they had worked together as comrades, even friends, forging this town out of chaos, creating something of value, forcing civilization to live again in the middle of this wasteland. She had needed his technical expertise, and he had needed her vision to direct it. They had been the perfect team, but once the dream had been accomplished, once their power was secure, the balance hadn't been enough. He had wanted more, but it was her dream, her vision, her law, her town. Still, she still needed his brain, but she would not let his raging egomania destroy all she had created here. Tonight would be the last time he mocked her rule. I find it curious that it's like the woman who is like, let's work together to build this thing, and it's the man who's like, I'm an egomaniac, give me all the power. I just find that curious. 
It's interesting. I thought it was interesting here to learn that they built the town together. They didn't just come to power somehow. Good to know. We all got to start somewhere. Little background. So it must be a fairly recent town, right? Well, I guess everything's fairly recent in this apocalypse, so never mind. Yeah. I thought it was cool because she mentions at one point in the movie that the problem, they got to kill someone, but it's kind of like family. And you never really get the sense that they were ever close in the movie. So it's just nice to know that there was a time they were together and then there was like a rift, almost like they were Master Blaster, her and him. And then along came the other Blaster, I guess, at some point. And he found a muscle, so he was able to rule with like a a stronger fist, I guess. Interesting. I wanted to talk more about like, there's an interesting passage about the Gulag. Like there's a lot that goes on to Max when he's like in the desert there in the Gulag. They actually call that part the Devil's Anvil. And it's like more of a salt flat in the book at first than just a sand dune and stuff you know so like it's just hotter and more treacherous of a wasteland that they paint in it okay on page 101 this is max drifting through the gulag two more days passed light and darkness heat and cold an endless spinning wheel of time a rack on which a man's body and soul were slowly pulled to pieces max no longer had any sense of time any memory at all he knew that he had been slowly choking to death on his own swollen tongue forever that every breath he took had always sent pain shooting through him like a stake driven through his heart that every stumbling step had always been harder than the last that the sandstorm would never end the screaming wind would keep pushing him back with every step forward that he took until eternity somewhere along the way he had died and gone to hell and never even noticed the difference that's a really good sentence i wish i could read this whole book to you guys but (laughs) the show is just too damn long (laughs) no go for it let's do it that should be book club just you doing audio versions of the entire books Okay, so I'll I'll just keep it down to two more passages and then we could all go home. But I just wanted to do some interaction between Max and the children. Okay, so this is on page 134. The children's eyes widened with fascination and wonder. Gazing down at them, he felt a dark wonder stir in his own soul. They were all so young. Suddenly, looking down at them, he felt old. The world that he had been born into, the civilization he had always believed was forever, indestructible, was gone. None of them had even been alive while it still existed. Already, it was only a mirage, a legend, a dream to them. He was a dinosaur, one of a dying breed. His world vanished and his fate extinction. So that's how he sees himself in the sight of all these youngsters and all these kids and everything. He's supposed to be how old in this film? I think he's supposed to be in his 40s. So would this be fourth in the chronological thing? I guess technically he does look older. He looks the oldest in this movie. I'm just trying to think of what injury he sustained in Fury Road that I might be able to track on his body in this movie. (laughs) No, I mean, because definitely they're not playing Tom Hardy as the 40-year-old Max. I feel like he would have a lot more wrinkles. Like, even though they did a good job aging him up with the gray hair and everything, like, all that time in the sun without sunscreen or, like, even a hat. That's a good point. You know, it's bad for your skin. That is a really good point, for sure. Somewhere in the book, it says that he has been 20 years since he has seen his wife. So, since she passed away. I don't know if he was, like, 20 or 21 in, in the first movie. Yeah, the timeline's a little iffy, but that's fine. Even Max himself, like, 
is having trouble remembering things in the book. But this is cool. On page 147, this is when he's sort of like sleeping. He mentions in the book that when he's at the crack in the earth with the children, it's the one of the first times that he was able to sleep unguarded. Like he, he wasn't sleeping with one eye open or anything. So he's having like really vivid dreams. And at one point in his dream, he starts to like have memories and stuff. So I thought this was kind of cool. I just wanted to read this passage, page 147. The memories came now, and he couldn't stop them. He had gotten the bastards who'd done it, given them exactly what they deserved, made certain that they would never hurt anyone else again, but it hadn't changed anything, hadn't even mattered by then, because nothing he could do could bring back his wife or his child, not even for a second. His own life had come to an end with theirs, prematurely, while civilization's sanity was still crumbling just before it had committed its own murder. When it had finally blown itself to hell a few weeks later, it had only seemed fitting. He had taken off alone into the wastes, and he had lived there ever since, never knowing why he bothered, never letting himself stop moving for long enough to question his own survival. That's so sad. Yeah. Gecko's death. So in the movie, Gecko has like a brace on his leg, and he spins the record over his head, and he calls it the Sonic. Oh, yeah. I like that. He goes out into the desert with them, and then he's not in Bartertown. Like, he has not shown up in Bartertown. It's because he has a very emotional death in the book. While I was reading it, I, I almost teared up because I thought this book was so good. Apparently they shot that, and it was cut for time, but there's a clip from it in the music video for We Don't Need Another Hero. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that. Yeah, no, there, there's a clip of it in the, in the music video, which, I, again, I've watched like 10,000 times. So this is page 166. This is Gecko's death. Max gathered the boy up gently in his arms. The thin, fever-wasted body scarcely seemed to weigh anything as he lifted it. Carrying him easily, Max began to climb the hill again toward the lights of Bartertown. This time, Anna and Savannah followed him. Max reached the crest of the hill and dropped to his knees with infinite care, lowering Gecko, supporting the boy's head against his shoulder as he pointed out the lights below. Savannah and Anna Goanna crouched down beside them, looking out at the lights and back again in wonder as Gecko tried to focus his eyes. An expression of of uncertain awe filled his face. I seize it, he whispered. I seize the river of light. He struggled to lift his head, gazing across at Entity's penthouse, a glowing, amorphous shape floating in the air. He reached out for it, stretching his arms. Skycraft! They skycraftin'! He looked up at Max. We's there, ain't we? He murmured eagerly. Tomorrow, morrow, Lan. Max nodded. Yes, son, he said softly. You really get attached to these kids when you're reading the book because they go, you know, a little deeper into each of them and, like, their one little thing that they have going on in the tribe and everything. And, and his was spinning that record. My favorite part of book club is not even the books. It's your experience reading the books and how much they mean to you. You know, like, I enjoy your emotion reading them to me. Like, that's, that's my favorite part of book club. I appreciate the audience, believe me. I mean, if no one else is listening, at least you two are right now. <laughs> <laughs> so this is just the very end of the movie with Max. So this is on page 210. Max gunned the engine, pulling abreast of the plane, amazed at how much power his own vehicle had, souped up and running on methane. He glanced toward the cockpit. Jedediah looked back at him with mingled panic and desperation, looked ahead again at the oncoming wall of death. Max pulled even with the plane's open doorway, saw Savannah and Pigkiller looking out at him, saw in their eyes for one brief second something far more profound than gratitude. He raised his hand in farewell, looked ahead again, jamming the accelerator down to the floor. 
Savannah and Pickiller watched as the dune buggy surged out ahead of the lumbering plane, with no words for what they felt, no time left to speak them. The end. <laughs> and then we can cue... We don't need another hero. We don't need another hero. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Brian, and thank you, Kara. You have survived the Thunderdome with me. Is this the closest to a Thunderdome you've had on the podcast so far? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this has been quite a Thunderdome of a recording experience. I hope it's all there <laughs> as much as possible. But This very much feels like my podcast, High School Slumber Party. It feels like a slumber party. Like, I thought I was going to bed hours ago. <laughs> but it's good because we're just, just friends talking, you know, and talking and, and staying up late and chatting about Beyond the Thunderdome. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Kara. And I hope that you will come back again soon. Thank you, Mike, for having me. Have a good night. Thanks for having us. Have a good night. So why don't you guys... Sing us out with We Don't Need Another Hero? Sure. <laughs> we, we don't need another hero. That's going to do it for the crazy two-part Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome episode. It was a lot of fun hanging out with Dr. Greens in Late Night, talking about the end of the world, going mad, and Tina Turner. We mentioned a bit on the show how much Mad Max has influenced popular culture, but I wanted to make sure I mentioned one of my favorite anime shows, the extremely popular and long-running Fist of the North Star. Uh, it's a hyper-violent cartoon about a leather-clad warrior roaming the post-apocalyptic wasteland, helping random people and fighting super mutant freaks. It's got like its own new original elements, too, and like a really unique storyline, but you know, to take one look at it, and it's obvious that Mad Max was uh, like extreme influence on this property. So please go check out Kara's work over at Wistful Thinking and Brian's work over at High School Slumber Party. Keep an ear out for me over at the Rocky Horror Wistful Podcast Picture Show episode coming up very soon over on Wistful Thinking. And also go check me out on my recent appearance on the Soylent Green episode of Foodie Films with Kyle Reinfried. Check out the recent season of Cinemakers, Christopher Nolan, that we just wrapped up over there. That's me, Joey, and Chris Podcast from now and again. So that was a really great series. A lot of fun. Good discussions. Great movies. Check that out. Also catch me on Cage Club, the original feed, Cage Club OG. Then there's also Cage Club Revisited, Keanu Club, all his movies, the Shia LaBeouf podcast, Watch the Throne, the Charlize Theron podcast, and stay tuned for lots of new and exciting shows in the year to come. Make sure and check out the show page over at cageclub.me for the show notes, links, pictures, what have you. Um, and you just might see some original artwork inspired by this episode or past discussions of the show. Search cageclub.me slash Mike to see all the shows that I'm on besides this show. Go to iTunes to rate, review, and subscribe. Email me at 3 at cageclub.me. That's T-H-R-E-E at cageclub.me. At cageclubpod on Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. I'm Mike Manzi, and I'll see you again on Third Time's a Charm. Three, two, that's a magic number. Three. It is. It's the magic number. Three may stub at me, and that's the magic number. What does it all mean? Coming up next on Third Times a Charm. Happy, happy Halloween, Halloween, Halloween.
the clock is ticking. Be in front of your TV sets for the horathon, and remember the big giveaway at nine. Don't miss it, and don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time. Happy, happy Halloween, Halloween.